Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lu, and I'm excited to cross over today to the American Express Arena in Brighton to catch up with no other than Paul Berger, the CEO, of course, and OBE. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you, Marcus. I'm delighted to be here. I'm looking forward to the next hour plus here with you and uh, really digging deep, not just into, of course, the amazing job you've been doing here with Brighton and the job you're doing there is amazing, obviously, and we'll, we'll d dive deep into this since you joined there in uh, 2012, I believe, till now. But before that, there was uh, plenty of other exciting stops, which I want to get into. You know, we always kind of start how it all uh, began. And as you just shared with me, Ian, I think you, your your dream really was to be a professional football player um, and then maybe realize that that wasn't your calling. So tell us about that, uh, you know, coming out of uni and, uh, you know, having the ambition to be a, a professional player, you know, and then how you landed into the, the first role, I guess, into the sort of financial sector industry. Yeah, well, football, Marcus, was my first love. I was uh, playing as a, uh, from the age of probably around seven years of age as a kid with, you know, junior Sunday, Sunday teams and uh, enjoying, as most kids do, getting involved with the game at that level. Um, and my ambition, again, like a lot of kids, I guess, of that age and certainly as we got older, wanting to play at a professional level. But the reality was, that, uh, you know, I found out, in my sort of late teens that, you know, I had plenty of ambition and enthusiasm, but not enough talent. So <laughs> right. that, uh, that dream, you know, withered and died. But um, football's always been a really important part of my life. I carried on playing at an amateur level until I was in my mid-30s. Right. Um, did my coaching badges, coached at a youth level, um, at quite a good youth level for about 12 years. Um, and uh, did a refereeing badge and just generally loved being involved in the game. So although I went off and studied marketing uh, with a view to getting a so-called proper job, um, it was always my ambition, I think, to sort of get back to work in football if I could somehow. Uh, and I eventually got to, to do that in sort of the late sort of 1996, 1997 yeah. um, with the FA. And uh, obviously since then, I've spent most of uh, the rest of my career working full-time in professional football. Absolutely. Yeah, you've got an amazing career over the last 25-plus years, so, which we'll be talking about. Uh, but uh, so you ended up, you know, coming in, uh, you know, when, when, you, when you said getting a real job, uh, I think you ended up uh, working in the financial sector, right, um, with Barclays yeah, or whether, what sort of companies were there before that? I've worked for a number of uh, major uh, blue chip financial services companies, uh, Royal and Sun Alliance, um, Santander Bank, and then Barclays Bank, and okay. ended up as a, a retail board member at Barclays in, in the sort of the mid late 90s. Um, that gave me, you know, exposure to big organisations, corporate structures, finance, understanding big budgets, getting involved in in big marketing campaigns. I studied marketing and, and communications, and that's always been my area of specialism. Okay. Um, but I always, again, stayed very much involved in football uh, as much as I could and, uh, you know, have enjoyed the game all my life. And more recently, obviously, I've been very lucky to work with the, the national team, with the FA, and then with Tottenham Hotspur, which is the club that I grew up with um, uh, supporting as a kid. And then moved to North America for a few years to work with Vancouver Whitecaps. And then 12 years ago, came back to the UK to uh, take over the running of Brighton for Tony Bloom. So yep. it's been an incredible journey. 
Absolutely, and and we're going to go in a little more detail than that for sure. But uh, that you yeah you covered the stops really well here. When you were with Barclays um, at that time as director of marketing, was there already an involvement with uh, with the with the Premier League, and or had that not started yet? No, Barclays had had been a sponsor of the Premier League um, in in that in that era, um, and it was a it was one of the first big football sponsorships by a major financial services organization. So it right. was a. It was a very prominent uh, sponsorship, but the FA itself had a rival financial services company nationwide who had started to take an interest in the national team and okay. had started to become the, the sponsor of the national team, such as you're able to sponsor a national team. Obviously, you can't have yeah. a, a logo on the playing shirt. It's only on the training kit and perimeter boards and, and so on. Right. Um, but post Euro 96, which England hosted, the FA were looking to um, increasingly commercialise their assets, their broadcast rights, their um, FA Cup competition, the England national team. And so they brought together a small number of people from industry, of which I was one, to work mm. with the FA's existing commercial team okay. to look at a different strategy, a different approach. And part of that was to um, consider um, bidding for the World Cup in 2006, and you know, England hadn't hosted a World Cup since 1966, which was obviously a winning World Cup for England. Right. And the FA was keen to build on the success of hosting the European Championships in 1996 with a World Cup 10 years later. Right. So I got involved with a small group of business people to support the FA with that. And then later on, the FA decided to, to offer me the chance to join full time as director of marketing and, and, and commercial. Um, which uh, was a fantastic job. I was, I think, the first uh, marketing director the FA ever employed. And it was during a period of great change for the organization. Adam Crozier became the chief executive. The FA left its um, headquarters at a place called Lancaster Gate in London to move to brand new offices, modern offices in, in Soho in the West End of London. Um, and it became a very different organization to the one that most people perceive the FA to be. And at the time, you know, women's football was becoming more prominent. Um, developing youth football and grassroots football was a, a higher priority and, and certainly a higher profile priority for the FA. Uh, and of course, involving um, people with disabilities in football was a, a critical part of that strategy. Right. So it was a great time to be at the FA and, and a great time to be the marketing director of the FA. And of course, the other prominent uh, thing that emerged during that period was was someone called David Beckham um, and <laughs> was able to help me uh, in my job as, as a director of marketing and communications and, and latterly the commercial director um, to really boost the profile of English football, boost the profile of the English national team. And when David became captain uh, of the England team, of course, and we went to the 2002 World Cup in Japan and Korea, the sort of Beckham mania really took off. Mm. We were able to really develop the FA commercially during that period. We had major sponsorship deals with a with a host of really big name uh, companies, and it was a fantastic period to to work with the national team and and with the FA itself. Actually, we did a deal um, with the England FA. I'm trying to remember, I think it might have been the 2002 World Cup. Even I don't know whether you were there at that, but you were there at the time. I'm not sure. Was it? That that was was a company called Big Cola here in Thailand. Funny enough. <laughs> yes, I, I, do you, do I, you remember I, that? I do oh remember. Yeah, yeah, that's a long time. It was the first time that we've been able to 
properly developed the FA commercially. I mean, my predecessor, Phil Carling, had done a fantastic job at the FA during a period when it wasn't so easy to market the FA or to develop the commercial strategy. You know, English football had been through a difficult period with hooliganism, um, changes to the structure of the league with the Premier League emerging in 1992. The England national team hadn't qualified for, um, you know, a, a couple of tournaments, major tournaments during that period. And Phil had a you know a lot less to work with than, than I did with the likes of David Beckham and Michael Owen and Rio Ferdinand and Sol Campbell, some really great players from that era. And of course, this new modernised FA under Adam Crozier that was you know at that time the third most quoted organisation in the UK after the government and royal family. I mean that will give you an idea of just how high profile things were for us in those days. And of course, then along came Sven Jorn Eriksson you know, probably one of the highest profile foreign coach appointments in, in English football history at, at the time. Um, and again, you know, huge headlines when when that happened and combined with a relative amount of success on the field, albeit we we, we still hadn't won and didn't win a, a major tournament. Um, there was a, you know, there was a, a flourishing period for the game and a flourishing period for the Premier League, who's who was seeing crowds grow and attendances at, at, at stadiums up and down the country get bigger and bigger. And I think the Beckham effect and obviously Manchester United's class of 92, as it was called, and the dominance of that that team at that time, um, you know, that was a major period for English football. And uh, I think laid some very firm foundations that we've been able to build on in the 20 years since then. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and especially here in Asia, and, and you know, you you know a little bit about this part of the world. Well, um, there's been always, you know, it, it, the England FA has always been one of the top teams. You know, people follow, uh, support, etc. So uh, uh, it was an easy one when we did the deal. Actually, now I think it's it was not even two or two. I think it was a couple of World Cups later, but um, it was a fun one uh, we did at that time. And you had buses all around the city going with um, English football players on it. <laughs> so in Thailand, why not? Uh, now, you know, one thing I remember, um, sort of when I was reading through your, um, profiles and stuff is that you've, you've always been obviously very engaged with the, the commercial side, right? Um, director of marketing doesn't always necessarily sound like it is sort of a com pure commercial role, right? It can include many other things. What, did, what would you call marketing and communication, of course, right? But I think you've always been right there looking at the commercial side, right? Increasing sponsorship deals. Um, you know, later on when we talk about hotspots, I think that you did a couple of big deals there as well. Um, is that a, you, you did some of that for the FA as well, or not really? Very much. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, much. essentially, I think that you know the director of marketing role, in in its purest sense, is about selling the game of football, and, and in particular at the FA, selling the English game. So, yeah. you know, I always started from the basis that that my job was to sell the sport and right. to make people attracted to the sport, whether they were people we were looking to play, uh, kids at grassroots level, adults at amateur level, uh, making sure the professional game was as good as it can be, the national team as strong as it could be, but also selling it to potential sponsors, making sure that we could bring in income, whether that was through selling our broadcast rights to broadcasters around the world or selling our assets, such as the FA Cup and the England team, uh, to potential sponsors who would want to associate with us. And so for me, you know, the role of, of marketing uh, communications and, and the commercial activities were very much one large activity, albeit with many different uh, facets to it. So but who, who was, was a, any big deal you remember you, you did um, or any on the broadcast side oh, or on yeah. the sponsor side? So we, yeah, so we created something called the, the FA Partners program, which was a similar commercial model to the to the one that UEFA used for the Champions League, where 
no one company owned the England team or the FA Cup as as a, a primary asset, but we had a group of partners that were able to share in the assets across the FA Cup, the England team, the junior England teams, uh, the women's FA Cup and so on. So, you know, we had Carlsberg, we had McDonald's, uh, we had British Airways, we had Umbro, the, the, the kit supplier, mm-hmm. we had Nationwide, um, and we had a number of smaller partners like Giorgio Armani that, that supported us as well, and Sony, uh, the electronics company. So we had a fantastic portfolio of partners that were fully engaged in working with us. AXA were also part of that in, in the early days, the major French insurance company, and we were able to generate significantly larger um, revenues than the FA had, had previously experienced. Uh, but at the same time, we didn't have any title assets sold. So we deliberately um, kept the, the main assets and team in the FA Cup clean of t- uh, title sponsorship. Mm-hmm. And the Champions League model served as well during that period. Um, and of course, the other major uh, event that happened during that era was that we decided to rebuild Wembley Stadium. And right. during that of rebuild, we were able to take the England team on the road, as we called it, around some of the biggest club stadiums in the country. So Manchester United, Liverpool, Tottenham, Arsenal, um, all around the country to play both senior team games and under 21 games, which took team out to a much wider audience you know one of the challenges of a national stadium in london is it can exclude you know large parts of the country from seeing the national team play because a lot of international games are obviously midweek and it's impossible to go from one end of the country to the other midweek without a huge amount of expense for the fans so to be able to take the england team around the country on the road expose the team to different fan bases at different clubs was fantastic experience and one that we all really enjoyed again with david beckham very much a a key part of that roadshow, if you like, that we were that we were taking around the country. Yep, no, that makes uh, that makes sense. I know. Yeah, it's interesting how you took the, to advantage of the opportunity. I guess at the time, then. Now, then you had a short sort of year, ten year plus uh, with Ogilvy and Mather, um, in in an interesting role as CEO for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Um, before, of course, then you come back to the football world. Um, how did that come about? And uh, you know, going from, you know. The bank to the to the to an FA role, and now you're in the world of advertising here. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I, I uh, Adam Crozier left the FA. I applied to be the chief executive. Um, I got down to the last two candidates myself and an external external candidate called called Mark Palios, who was a former player, um, and the FA board at that time decided that because of the slightly precarious nature of the FA's finances, um, due to the commitment we've made to rebuild Wembley Stadium, the FA wanted um, someone with more of a finance background. Mark's background was as an accountant and an insolvency expert, as well as a former professional footballer. Um, And they decided to go with Mark. And, um, you know, fairly fairly soon after that, you know, having not got the chief executive's role, I, I was determined to to push my career forward and, and become a chief executive. And an opportunity came up to join Ogilvy & Mather, the okay. US-based okay. advertising agency. And, yep. you know, fantastic brands, uh, American Express, Ford Motor Company, British Airways, and a range of other yep. brands around the world. So with my marketing background, this seemed like a great opportunity to, to, to maybe, you know, take a break from football for a while and, and move 
to a slightly different industry, albeit, you know, one of our major clients, Ford, were a big sponsor of the Champions League. So there was still an element of being involved in in, in the game. Right. Um, but I did that. Um, and then within a fairly short space of joining Ogilvy, um, I got the opportunity to move straight back into football uh, with my um, hometown club, Tottenham Hotspur, who a club I'd supported as a kid. Um, I got to know Daniel Levy during my time at the FA and admired what he was trying to do with the club. He'd only recently taken over as the owner from Alan Sugar, um, Lord Sugar, uh, you know, of of the of the whole uh, club, and was looking to sort of rebuild his board, bring in some more commercial expertise, some more marketing expertise. And after a period of months of discussing, you know, what the role would look like, I joined Tottenham Hotspur as executive director. So, you know, I was delighted to be back in football, but I also stayed as a non-executive director of Ogilvy & Mather, um, even yeah. when I went to Spurs, because I enjoyed the agency very much. It was a fantastic uh, role for me. Uh, I really enjoyed being uh, working with some really talented people there. But again, my heart was very much in football. Um, and, you know, moving back to Tottenham, then again, really sort of provided me with this great foundation um, to move into club football, which, uh, you know, I've never looked back from in all the years that have followed. But uh, Tottenham will always be a special club in my heart because I grew up supporting them. Uh, and I've very enjoyed my time uh, working on the board there and working with Daniel. Yeah. I mean, having it as your childhood team, uh, and all of a sudden you're there as executive director, that must be pretty cool. <laughs> I can imagine. But... Yeah. So, do you know, Marcus, it's, it's a moment, know, when, right? I back, when I look back on my life, you know, um, you know, working at the FA was special because it was a national team. It was my, my country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, during yeah. that period, I, you know, I got to meet the Queen. I got to visit uh, the Prime Minister. I got to visit Nelson Mandela at his home in, 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 in Johannesburg. Yeah. You know, special experiences that only you know this bizarre world of football can sometimes bring to you right. and then right. to to move from there uh into your the club you supported as a kid um at a stadium that you'd been to going to since you were six or seven years of age you know i don't think you can be any luckier than that you know to work with your the club that you grew up supporting and your national team you know i couldn't quite believe my luck to be honest and yep. um i think you're gonna you know, stop I, right there <laughs> yeah absolutely and i was determined to make the most of those opportunities to work as hard as i could to be the best that i could be to try and deliver you know success for tottenham as much as i had uh for the fa and uh you know i still look back on those times very very fondly because you know, not many people in their life get to, you know, to fulfill a dream. And, and although my initial dream was to play professional football, I never achieved that, you know, to get as close to it as I did with, with the national team of England, play, you know, being at a World Cup quarterfinal against Brazil. And then with Tottenham later at, at two cup finals at Wembley uh, was really special for me. And, uh, you know, something I'll always be grateful for. And I can imagine. So, so we're talking about 2005 to 2010 here, roughly. So, you know, five plus years with Tottenham, executive director. So, let's talk about what does an executive director do, right? Uh, what's the difference everything. to the CEO or to others, or what is it? Just a yeah, different title, but the same thing. Tottenham didn't really have a, a CEO. Daniel Levy was the executive executive chairman, and and uh, my job in those days was pretty much to take care of all of the day to day operations of the club that weren't football operations because we had a, a sporting director, Damon Camoli, that, that okay. I worked closely okay. with. Um, and, you know, we had a finance director who, who took care of the day-to-day -day numbers, but everything else, ticketing, marketing, 
sponsorship, all the commercial deals, licensing, yeah. pretty much everything else, you know, sat, sat with me. Okay. Um, and I, I very much enjoyed that responsibility. And um, again, a, you know, a good era for Tottenham where we were looking to try and find a, a way to build the stadium that they're now in. So it went as far back as my time, you know, Daniel's plan to create this world-class stadium and also to build a world-class training ground, which was eventually built in, in, in an area of North London that I grew up in. So I was delighted to play a, a small part in helping to secure the planning permission for that. Um, but again, it was it was just fantastic to be involved in a club that had real ambition, uh, work with the chairman that had a very clear vision for what he wanted to do with the club and to learn a lot from him. You know, Daniel's known in football as one of the toughest negotiators, one of the hardest taskmasters and and to a large extent they're both true and um but when you're working with someone like that you learn a lot you yeah. listen you see you watch you know how he operates and the way in which he extracts the the best value for his club and that's something daniel has done consistently over more than two decades and you know that marks him out as one of you know the most successful chairman in club football you know trophies are obviously important and winning on the field is very important, but so is actually making sure your football club is as sustain financially sustainable as it can be. And that is something Daniel has done for Tottenham very, very successfully. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. At least what what everyone what you can read and see. And, and now, let, let, again, being involved in the again commercial side and and that part of it, let's talk a bit about it. I believe one of the bigger deals you guys did was a huge deal with Mansion, right, with a betting company here from Asia. Uh, what I read, sort of, was sort of thirty, thirty-five million pounds uh, over four years um, uh, for the for the jersey, right? I think those yes, that was one of the bigger ones. Yeah, that was a very big deal for the club at the time. Um, obviously, it's since been surpassed as many deals, record yeah. deals, have been. But at the time, that was a substantial uplift in in the value that Tottenham were getting uh, from their previous shirt sponsor, which was Thompson Holidays. And, you know, we were looking to take the club not just to another financial level, but also more internationally. Oh, and so sorry. it was a big, uh, a big step for any Premier League club at that time to take a gambling sponsor and particularly an overseas based one on their shirt. Um, but I we, was going to say that was still early days of that, right? I mean, now it's it was really every other one has has one. But uh, this was still yeah. in early days of it. It was very early days and it wasn't without controversy because, again, it was it was seen as taking the Premier League and a Premier League club into an area that, 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 that no other had been at that time. Right. There was obviously concerns about, you know, advertising a gambling company when we're selling so many replica shirts to kids. Yeah. And so we, we were one of the first clubs to offer parents the choice to have you know, the, the gambling brand on their child's replica shirt or for us to sell the shirt plain. Okay. But of course, most kids actually, and we're talking here right way back to 2006, we were right. offering to do that. Yeah. But most kids, and mine were the same, they wanted to wear the shirt that looked like the player's shirt. Sure. And therefore, the vast majority of parents then, as I believe now, still will take a shirt with the gambling sponsor on, recognizing there are obvious obvious risks to that and obvious potential controversies to that. Mm. But but kids are kids and, and they want to look like their heroes. They want to look like the stars that they watch on TV and in the stadium. And they don't want their shirt to look different. So um, you know that was that was something which we we worked hard to communicate, work with various pressure groups to explain and you know get people to understand that there was a choice and we weren't forcing 
a gambling sponsor onto people under the age of 18. Um, but of course, you get into all kinds of other challenges where, for example, a 14 year old can be six foot two and therefore needs an adult sized shirt. So it wasn't as simple as just offering child shirts with without the gambling uh, company's name on. You know, we had to go beyond that. Yeah. So it's a complex area uh, and one that we worked through. But it was a big deal at the time and it helped you know further Tottenham's ambitions during that period. Mm. Any any other one uh, sort of which stands out of of the deals or you know, did you were you involved in some tours uh, you took Tottenham somewhere around that time uh, to Asia or other parts of the world? Um, we went to South Korea to take part in something called the Peace Cup, the Peace and it was quite Cup. an interesting right. yes, right. Peace Cup, yeah, and it was an interesting, interesting tournament. It was you know we had a couple of uh, other big clubs in it. Boca Juniors from uh, South America from Argentina was one club. We ended up winning this. Uh, this competition with quite a high level of prize money uh, associated with it. Um, and again, it was another big step for the club during an era when, you know, tours to Asia were not that common. But again, yeah. the, the 2002 World Cup had opened up, I think, Asia to the European football world and in particular to the English football world in a way that, you know, it hadn't previously. And, yeah. um, you know, from that point of view, it was lucrative for the club. It was good for our development of our brand. It was good in terms of increasing our our, our fan base in, in Asia. And we had a fa fabulous time in South Korea, something that we really, really enjoyed. And uh, Funny enough, again, now, now I remember it. Actually, now it, it took a while to, yeah, I remember that tournament even. Uh, and I can't, I'm trying to remember the moment who put it together. But, uh, yeah, there, there was a Peace Cup. Um, I think it didn't last very long. I remember I think they only ever did one. <laughs> and then I think maybe, they probably lost maybe. so much money. <laughs> with it and never did it again but uh yeah i do now vaguely remember it interesting <laughs> so you were there too all right do you remember roughly i mean just out of fun again now because it was interesting to compare the numbers right, of what you know, people pay now whether it's the, for a jersey or what, what was sort of a fee you guys were getting at the time uh, do you have a rough idea couple of million us dollars at that time couple of million, uh, that's right. okay. um, which again you know probably by today's standards of the bigger clubs and, and tottenham included it you know it will be a relatively modest fee but at the time you know it was considered to be you know quite a large amount of money and, and on top of that all expenses covered etc so you know it, it was worth doing it was worth doing as part of your pre-season program and um you know something as i said at the time that was still quite unusual so manchester united i think were one of the few english clubs Uh, that were regularly touring the rest of the world during that period, maybe Liverpool as well. But but certainly it wasn't as common as to do itself. that now. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you're right. So I think from sort of two, sort of mid-2000 onwards, uh, you know, 210 and beyond, that's really when uh, the Premier League and others start to push this really hard. And obviously you've done an amazing job since then, building the brands and, and coming here with clubs on a regular basis. So... Um, and then you had another one of those interesting. Uh, it's almost like I would call it the Ogilvy Mazer moment. You had a, you went off to to Vancouver to run a club there. How that, how did that come all about? Again, a fantastic sort of opportunity that that came about really um, on the back of just pushing my career forward. You know, I was desperate again to to try and run a club outright. Um, and you know, that period uh, for Tottenham, Daniel was. You know, very much the sort of um, executive chairman, like a chief executive day to day. He, he didn't have any plans to, to change his role. Um, and obviously, he's still in that role now, you know, some whatever it is, 12, 13 years later. So, um, you know, that that was on my part, you know, for me, a ceiling at Tottenham. I needed to right. push 
beyond the ceiling and an opportunity came up to move to North America to take a um, take a club into Major League Soccer and to be the first British football executive to do that. And I thought, yeah. wow, you know, that's yeah. that's an incredible opportunity. Vancouver's an incredible city. Yeah. Um, they were looking to structure the club like a European club. So I, I had familiarity, obviously, from Tottenham with how that worked. Um, they were looking to sort of set the highest possible standards. And I was comfortable with my experience with Tottenham and with England that, that I could help them do that. Um, and so, you know, from a family point of view, we decided it'd be a great experience, not just for me from a career point of view, but also for our children to experience living in North America. Um, it's an easy adjustment. English is, the, 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 you know, the, the, the most spoken language in Vancouver, although French is, 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 is taught in schools as well. Um, culturally, there's not a huge difference between, you know, Canadians and, and, and Brits, you know, a little bit, a little bit different, obviously, but not hugely different. And there was this fantastic sort of landscape and, and lifestyle opportunity where, you know, we could live close to the mountains, where we could ski close to the, the water, where you could do um, sailing and all kinds of other stuff in, in the summer um, and a safe, a safe city uh, and one that was, you know, really excited on the back of the 2010 Winter Olympics to, to mm. see another big sporting um, challenge come their way. And joining Major League Soccer was that challenge. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed uh, really enjoyed the, the period I, I had there, nearly three seasons. And, you know, I think we managed to do something like 25 new commercial deals in 24 months. Um you know, including broadcast rights deals, sponsorship deals, licensing deals. Um, and it was an incredible period from a commercial point of view. It felt like we were signing new contracts, you know, almost every other day at one point. And um, it was just exciting. And it was, again, going back to my time at the FA, you know, the first and most important role that I had at Vancouver was to sell the sport, you know, and to sell the sport to an audience that was not as committed to football or soccer as they called it, as we were in England or as we were in Europe or even as they were in Asia. You know, there was ice hockey, which is the number one sport in Vancouver. Yep. There was basketball. There was NFL. There was CFL, which is the Canadian version of NFL. Um, there was baseball. Um, there was a range of winter sports, skiing, snowboarding, ice skating. So I was, you know, in selling football and selling soccer, I was way down the pecking order of people's right. priorities. And, you know, we were trying to sell a new franchise. We were trying to sell season tickets. We were trying to sell sponsorships. So the challenge of that from, from, a, from a personal point of view, a career point of view, was just immense. Mm. And what it enabled me to do is put together all of the things that I studied, marketing and communications, all of the experience I'd gained in commercial sponsorship sales, in broadcast sales, licensing sales, and also running football clubs and, and, and trying to get staff motivated as one unit within a football club for the team to be successful on the pitch. Try to bring all of that together under one roof in a new country with an entirely new culture was just something that I absolutely loved. And uh, the challenge and the opportunity that presented was something that I felt that I just had to take. Yeah, I know it. It sounds like fun, but I, I know Vancouver is an amazing city too. And like you said, uh, that it was that's why I call it the Canadian adventure. I think <laughs> um, it, you know it was a couple of years of only. And now that that brings us right here where we want to be, and this is uh, where the office you're in now in Brighton, um, because all of a sudden yeah, there's an opportunity to come back. Uh, but it's not in the Premier League. It is uh, you know at that time you guys were still playing Championship. 
Um, so bring us back to that. Um, how you got there in 2012. Are we, that's where we sort of roughly are now. And I guess you, you were offered the role as CEO, I believe. Yeah, I again, there was no desperate desire to leave Vancouver. I, I enjoyed the city a lot. I missed, if I'm honest, the intensity of, of English football, just that um, that passion and that um, commitment and that desire for the whole country, it felt, that, yeah. that, that got behind football here every weekend. There wasn't that same kind of commitment in Vancouver. There was obviously from the, the season ticket holders and, and the people that came to, to watch our games. And, and, you know, we got crowds up to over 20, 22,000 during my time there, which was fantastic. But it wasn't top of mind for people in the way no. the sport is no. here, the way football is here. And I miss that. Um, in an ideal world, um, you know, from my kids' education point of view, sort of a three-year period for them in Vancouver was going to be the maximum because then it was a case of either coming back into the English education system at a time that, that worked and was, was logical, or it meant probably staying in North America for at least another two years and, and, and finishing their education in the North American system. Right. So there was family considerations as well. And again, if I'm honest, I would have preferred to have come back to the Premier League. Um, but for various reasons, the opportunities that, that, that I was exploring then didn't quite work. Um, along came this opportunity with, with a championship club and a, an opportunity to meet Tony Bloom, who, who was the Brighton owner, fairly recently installed as a new Brighton owner, right. who had just right. finished building a, a new stadium, which had taken 13 years to, to secure planning permission and funding for. Um, and Tony was able to sell this incredible vision to me where he talked about becoming a Premier League club. He talked about supporting the building of the stadium with the building of a world-class training facility. Uh, he talked about, you know, building a, a club culture where, you know, there was a very distinct set of values that drove our behaviours every single day on and off the field. And that vision just appealed to me. And in some ways, it felt like a, a hybrid, if you like, of a... Of, a, of, a, of a, a very established club, one that was over 100 years old at that point, mm. um, and almost like a startup, a new beginning for the club, a, a clean sheet of paper, a new stadium, a new training ground, a new vision, new values, um, new, new coaching staff, new football squad, new staff off the pitch. And that appealed to me because I enjoyed what I did at Vancouver, which was a very similar feeling, albeit not with 100 plus years history. Right. And obviously right. combining um, the knowledge that I'd gained there with the knowledge that I had from Spurs of what it took to be in the Premier League, what the club structure needed to, to look like, the quality of people you needed, the quality of processes and systems and procedures that you needed to have in place. And again, this this challenge um, just felt right. And obviously, Brighton's a great part of the world, uh, close to London, but very distinct in its own mm. city, culture and uh, people. Um, and yeah, the, the opportunity just seemed like the right one to take. And I was very pleased to meet someone like Tony Bloom, who just had a great way about him, modest, humble, committed, financially astute, as well as being wealthy enough to you know, deliver on the club's ambition to get to the Premier League. And between us, we, you know, we sat down, worked out what the vision should be. And it was pretty clear we needed to get to the Premier League. We needed to stay in the Premier League and we needed to progress in the Premier League. But also, you know, understand from him that he also was in this for the long term. You know, he wasn't going anywhere. This was something that um, was a big family asset, something that his family had actually been involved in, albeit not as owners for 
almost half a century. Yeah, I read about that, right? Because his grandfather or something was involved. And he could see through his own children, you know, a pathway to the future uh, of the club as well. So um, I think all of the things came together. I I moved back in in 2012. We had a a really exciting first season where we made the the playoffs and Mm. eventually losing out in the in the semi-finals to, to Crystal Palace. The second season, we did it again with a different coach um, and this time went out in, in, in the playoff semi-finals uh, for the for the second uh, successive year, this, this time to Derby. Mm. So, you know, the progress that we've made and the relative success that we've had hasn't been on a straight line. You know, they've been bumped in the road. You know, we've made mistakes. Right. We've got some things wrong. Um, but all the while, we had this underlying ambition to play in the Premier League, to build a high-performance culture, to to do it the right way, not to not to overspend, not to break financial fair play rules as they were were known then, um, to make sure that you know we we became good citizens in in the football community, to build our profile, and to work with world-class sponsors again, and 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 we come all the way full circle back to making sure our commercial rights were sold at the highest level. And we were able to do a fantastic deal with American Express, which is still now into its its uh, second term, initial 10-year term completed. We're now into a, another long-term deal with them. Mm, and also amazing. with Nike, who, who've become our technical partner over the last decade, a very loyal and committed technical partner. Uh, and most recently, even, we've added British Airways to that list of partners that, that are world-class. And you know, this has been an incredible journey for Brighton, and of course, now playing in the Europa League um, is is really the icing yeah, on the cake. It's unbelievable, and, and that's why you know people always say, "Oh, it's all overnight success." Well, it's not really, right? Because as you said, uh, uh, you know, Tony bought the team in two hundred nine, right? Um, so before you even got into the Premier League, that's two hundred nine to two sixteen as a you know seven years, seven eight years. Uh, in the making to get into the Premier League after 34 years for the club itself, but you know seven or eight of that uh, in his era. I mean that's uh, you know that is uh, that's a uh, that's a long time. And since then, of course, um, you you obviously incredible. Again, I, I sort of looked up some of the numbers here. I think the first season you were in 15th spot. Uh, so the season after was 15, 16. So you know that is sort of hanging on the on the thread there at the bottom half of it. Um, Again, you know, as you said, that was sort of what you probably referred to earlier, a bit of bums on the road. Um, but now, right, 2-21-22, I think that was, sound looked to me, was like the, the, the first breakthrough getting into the top 10 there, right? I think you ended up with a ninth place. Clearly, yeah. everyone will, will probably remember that last year, um, you guys came six, qualified for UEFA. And this year, again, you're having a great season. You were there in eighth place, you know, just a few points away from, uh, you know, teams like Manu and, and Newcastle, who's sitting there was huge, <laughs> with much bigger check sizes than you guys. Um, and again, doing very well and, and, you know, competing with the best there. And even in Europe, I think you've done well. You're second in the, in the, in the table there or in your group. Um, you know, it was, uh, with the, with the eyes on qualifying uh, for the next round, so I mean it's an unbelievable journey. And and now, when you look back, that's you know it's easier to do now than when you were in the middle of all that, right? But you know what was it? What do you think really? What is uh, what made that happen? Is it just you know smart work, a bit of luck here and there, or well you know what's the magic formula of of Brighton? <laughs> well, I, I think without giving away all the secret sauces, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think it's a combination of things, Mark. I mean, I think first of all, you, you start with a good owner, and you know, I was told by David Dean, the former Arsenal 
uh, vice chairman um, and, a, and a very senior figure within the Football Association here in England that, you know, the most important thing in the modern era of football is, is to choose your owner, not your club. Okay. Uh, okay. If you have a good owner, then any club can be a good club and a successful club. And for, for me, um, I have a great owner in, in Tony Bloom. And I think the second most important thing is a very clear vision. You know, what is it you're trying to achieve? How, how do you uh, set out to, to, to achieve that, uh, that vision? You know, what kind of values, what kind of behaviors are you going to ask your staff to exhibit every day? Mm. And then it comes down to the quality of the people and the infrastructure. You know, can you get the best possible people on and off the pitch? And can you uh, provide them with the tools they need to be successful? So a world-class stadium, a world-class training environment, so the players can rest and recover. And I think, you know, with people, there's also the need to accept that different people will see you through different eras. So not everyone will be on the whole journey that you make from, in our case, the mid-level of the championship when I arrived to the top six in the Premier League and the Europa League where we are now. Mm. Along the way, you'll need to make changes. You'll need to upgrade. You'll need to change the skill sets. You'll need to improve the quality at every level. That doesn't mean to say the people that leave you have played any lesser role in the journey. They've just played one part of the role and, sure. and one part of the journey and then you move to a different group of people and of course beyond that there is a spine within the club of people that have been with us for the whole journey and whose skill sets and capabilities are relevant and needed throughout the whole journey and then on top of all of that you need a bit of luck and uh, you know we we have had little bits of luck at critical times we've made our own luck i guess because we've worked hard collectively to achieve what we've achieved but you do need luck and, and sport and particularly football is very very difficult sometimes in terms of whether uh, the outcome is fair you know you can play really well and lose one nil yeah. you can play really badly get a late penalty win one nil so luck plays a part in any kind of uh, top level sport in any kind of sport any level but you also in football have very low scoring games the margins are very narrow so luck does play a, a part in what you do but over a period of time you also need to execute your strategies relentlessly you need to be consistent in what you do you can't allow bumps in the road to set you back or take you off course and sometimes also you have to ignore the noise because in top-level sport, there's always a lot of noise, whether it's on social media, whether it's from pundits, whether it's from media, whether it's from fans, whether it's from your local community. Sometimes you have to be prepared to put some earmuffs on to block out that noise and stay focused on what your vision is, uh, the way you want to achieve that vision, and to ultimately succeed in what, what that ambition is. Um, and sometimes that's hard because when you're going through a difficult period, whether you're losing matches or fans are losing confidence in what you're trying to achieve or the time it's taking to achieve it, mm. it's very easy then to switch strategies just to appease people and to make the noise go away. But actually, very often, the best way to achieve your ambition is to block out the noise and stay focused and to keep doing the good things that, that, that you're doing and to ensure that the teamwork inside the club on and off the pitch is the best it can be. Yeah, and, and clearly you guys are doing an amazing job for that. Now, here's a question. 
when you when you look at you know your competitors being in the top half of the of the league here now right and and they're getting you know before it was always a, a small group of them right uh, each year you had the same guys there you know now we know over the years um with that you know additional foreign capital coming in you know you got city up there now it's you know newcastle with huge ownerships behind them etc i mean it's it you know the the air is getting thinner up there and the money is is bigger you know every year in a sense right so how do you guys look at that how do you you know, compete with that. Um, where clearly, I'm assuming that you might, you obviously don't have exactly the same firepower as uh, some of those names we just mentioned here. We definitely don't. <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming that. <laughs> um, so, so we have to first of all, you know, we, we we're quite happy to be, I suppose, in what other industries would be known as a challenger brand. You know, we're very happy to to be pushing and challenging um, at the traditional big six clubs. You know, City, United, Liverpool, Chelsea, Tottenham, Arsenal. They are the clubs traditionally. That have that have been occupying the the, the European spots in English football, yeah. but you know you've also got very big clubs like Newcastle that now would certainly, with their wealth, be able to sort of count themselves amongst those top six clubs. You've got clubs with great histories like Aston Villa, yeah. who you know again are challenging, um, and clubs that are having tougher times like Everton, who are big football clubs with you know big histories, who yeah. you know yeah. would have ambitions themselves to be in and amongst that 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 top group. So if you included Everton um, along with Newcastle Villa and ourselves, you know, you're looking at, you know, eight, nine, ten clubs that are pushing for European spots. And and of course there are many others yeah. in the Premier League that are not Chelsea is, a, is should be in no, there normally in and they're not, they're not really in there either right now. Yeah, they're clubs that are not there just to make up the numbers. They're clubs yeah. that have their own ambitions to to do what we've done in the last couple of seasons. So yeah. we have to be smarter. Um, we have to work faster. We have to fish for players in ponds that other clubs are not fishing in because, you know, that's where we can perhaps create a competitive advantage by buying cheaper, developing those players, selling them at a higher price, doing the, the same model again. We've got to support our academy to try and bring through young players from the local area, from, from England, and again, get them into our first team to save us transfer fees, develop them, and potentially, if they're good enough, for them to be sold to, to bigger clubs for bigger fees, and then we start the cycle all over again. So for us to compete, and bear in mind, in 122 years of history, we're only still in our 11th season ever of playing in the top flight of English football. You know, you know, not even 10% of our history has been played at this level. So we're still very new. We're still very green. We're still learning. You know, in some ways, we're still naive. We're certainly naive to European football. You know, it's been a real eye-opener and a lot of lessons learned already this season uh, playing you, in the Europa League. You, you um, beat Ajax twice, I think, right? At home and away, right? Which, again, you know, I know Ajax are not in... Ajax are not in their best moment. Correct, um, that's and, true. You know, that's we true. we understand that. But at the same time, this is a club that's won the Eredivisie 36 times, the Dutch Cup 20 times, the European Cup and Champions League four exactly. times. You know, yeah, for yeah. us to beat Ajax twice was a big achievement for our club and another milestone yeah. on the journey that we're on. Um, but really? equally, losing at home to AK Athens when you know people thought that we would win that game comfortably was a big lesson that mm. that. that no club in European football that has a history of playing European football can be underestimated. And even clubs that, like us, are playing in European football for the first time have got there through merit. They are good teams who are doing good things. Yeah. So you can't underestimate anyone um, at, at any level of European football. And, you know, we're, we're learning every game and uh, we're enjoying every single minute of it. 
Here's another one which I've been impressed with. Um, you know, and again, I don't only see it from the outside. Uh, a lot of times when teams like yours uh, get into Europe, they struggle in the league because now you have two schedules to run, right? A lot more load on the players, which means you need either a bigger squad or, you know, lucky, you need a bit lucky with injuries and stuff, you know. And I've seen it with my teams in Europe, uh, in Germany, you know, Cologne, when they ever, when they make it up there, they, they almost get relegated while they're playing in Europe. Um, you guys obviously have been able to really cope with that pressure. You know, again, just talk about it. How, how do you guys deal with that? Well, so far, so far we have coped with it. I mean, we've we've been able to maintain our our league position in in the sort of top seven, top eight of the Premier League, and to yep. stay in touch with with the top four. So that's been obviously a big priority because financially, that's where our solid foundation comes from. Right. You know, staying right. in the Premier League and particularly staying in the top half of the Premier League is important. But also making sure that we've been able to compete in Europe, and therefore, you know, Roberto De Zerbi and his staff have done a fabulous job in rotating the squad. We've suffered, like everyone else, injuries. We've actually got a few more injuries at the moment than we'd, we'd like, for sure. Um, we've also picked up one or two suspensions, which is inevitable when you're playing a lot of games and high-intensity games. Mm. But our staff, I think, have done a really good job in managing the loading of the players, both in training and, and matches and, and, and preparation and recovery, getting that balance right. But we're also still learning, as I said earlier. You know, this is a new experience for us and, and, a, and a challenging experience. And it's not just a challenging experience on the field. We're also learning off the field how to to manage our our staff workloads. And, you know, it, it's a it's a brand new experience for us to be able to compete in four competitions in one season yep. with a reasonable chance of going fairly deeply in, in, in all of those competitions. You know, if we progress in the into the knockout stages of the Europa League, which we very much hope to do, there's another set of games after Christmas. We've then got to combine with playing in the English FA Cup, which is a big competition, one that we reached the semi-final of um, last year and, and one that we really want to go even further in and get to a final again for the first time since 1983. So there's real ambition here to not just do well in, in one competition, but to, to try and push as hard as we can in all the competitions we enter. And again, that's something that's new to a club of our size. It's normal for a club like Manchester United or Chelsea or Liverpool to, yep. to push in all competitions. It's not normal for us. And Correct. so having a squad that can cope with that, uh, being prepared to play young players in big games has been something we've had to do because we don't have the depth of squad that some of the bigger clubs have because our budgets are not as big. But nevertheless, um, we're you know we're we're able to compete and we want to compete and and we're enjoying doing so. Mm. Oh, and you're doing an amazing job. Now, I want to talk about Tony Bloom a bit. Um, obviously, very I don't know him personally, but uh, what you read about him, interesting per personality, right? Being a poker player. Uh, making his money, um, you know, building this sort of, uh, I guess, uh, betting consultancy, betting advisory uh, with Star Lizard, um, which is, you know, all really interesting and, and, a, and a unique, very unique space um, to be in. Um, and and the word Moneyball, which is, you know, the movie, um, you know, where in baseball they, they took statistics and, and really started to change the way they were drafting players and, and so on, right? That's been circulating around the club a bit as well, maybe for the right or wrong reason, um, maybe because of the background there, I guess, using data, using analytic, using ways to analyze the game and maybe, uh, you know, the players. Can you talk a bit about that? Uh, you guys, what do you guys do with it, or how do you guys do it, or is you know is that just a myth? <laughs> well, I think a lot of clubs these days, particularly at the top level, use data to to, to varying degrees. Uh, for us, 
it's part of our recruitment of, of player strategy. Um, we look at uh, positional needs and, and use data to support our identification of players in that position. Mm-hmm. Um, we still use traditional scouting methods as well. So, you know, once we've looked at the data and, and narrowed down the field of players that we want to look at, um, who meet the profile and the attributes that the coach is, is asking us for, then we use normal traditional scouting methods to verify that data, to, okay. to, to make sure it is it is telling us what it should be telling us and it is the sort of um, player that we're looking for. We then do a high level of personality profiling to make sure the character of the player is, is going to fit with our, our club and our squad particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, obviously, we have to look at valuations and can we afford this player? Is he someone who might be prepared to come to us? Are we able to meet his personal <coughs> demands, his agent's demands? Um, is this the sort of player that's likely to settle well in England in the Premier League? Or do we have to have a two-step process where maybe that player goes out on loan first, maybe at a slightly lower level or a lower level league in a different country in Europe to make that adjustment? Or are they in Europe already and therefore their next obvious step is into the Premier League? Or are they a young player, a much younger player, who's going to need a combination of loans and and, and in-house development before they're ready for our first team? So there's a range of different considerations. But all the while, what we're trying to do is to fish in different ponds, find players other clubs perhaps are not even looking at or aware of. Um, try and, and, and that is, is that by, by using these sort of analytics and stuff? Is that yeah, something you yes, feel uh, you, you guys are a bit doing things a bit different than everyone else? Because we're looking, you know, we're looking at, at matches all over the world and and trying to establish patterns in in performance and and, and behaviours and and actions that mm. that enable us to identify perhaps players in in a different way and therefore in different places. Right. And if we're able so to a broader reach in that sense, yeah, broader reach. And if we're able to bring those players in at a lower cost, mm. but with high potential for development, yeah. and then if we take Cachado as a good example, who's an Ecuadorian player. You know, who came in and you know was able to progress quite quickly after after a short loan to play at the highest level, and then within 18 months move on to Chelsea for a very very significant British record transfer fee. Then, of course, we're able to reinvest um, a lot of that money into doing the same thing again. And you know, that's where, as a business model, we're able to potentially create. A small advantage over some of our bigger rivals because we're able to generate significantly higher revenues perhaps from that kind of methodology right. than they might be able to because they're buying finished players players that are arguably at the top end of the market where the potential for adding value or selling them on at a profit is much lower so whilst they may benefit from higher revenues through the gate through hospitality through sponsorship you know we're hoping that we can uh, at least um, mitigate the difference between their revenues and ours by being smarter traders. And that's not to say we get everything right because we don't. It's not to say their methodology is wrong because it isn't. It's just a different model and a different way for us to compete. Yeah, now makes complete sense. And and again, that, that sort of uh, sums it up nicely in terms of what you read and and what you think uh, you guys are doing. And you know, and I know you can't give away all the secrets here, but uh, I think you you touched on it very nicely. I, I like it. So how is? I mean, Tony, you, you mentioned earlier, um, you know, when you re- when he recruited you and and how you sat down. So on, how is he involved now? Is it really is he sort of a hands on chairman, or you kind of he lets you run the show, or how does it work, look like? 
No, I mean, it, it's to, for me personally, you know, after 12 years working with Tony, it, it's, a, it's a great combination of where, you know, he lets me and, and my executive team get on with running the club day to day. But at the same time, he's engaged, he's available, he's accessible, he's interested, he's enthusiastic, which is the best combination, I think, to, to have a non-executive chairman uh, owner uh, and an executive team that are allowed to get on and do their jobs every day without, you know, someone who is constantly involved in, in you know, interfering in decisions and, and slowing things up. You know, Tony's that best combination of of engaged and involved, but at the same time, not getting involved in the day-to-day. Yeah, and then that you know that that combination you know is built up over many years of working together, trust, um, delivery of results, and you know a, a common goal. You know we know what our vision is. As I said before, we know the values that that he expects us to exhibit day to day in our decision making. You know he likes to know about progress in areas, and so we keep him well informed of everything that we're doing. Um, and also having a supportive board of directors. You know we've got a a good board of directors with a range of different skills. Most of those directors are non-executive directors. They don't work in the club every day, but they have a, a fantastic combination of, of different experience from other industries that we can draw upon as an executive team to support us in the running of the football club. And again, that board has been largely together since the, the day Tony took over the running of the club in 2009. So stability is another key element of uh, building the club and making it more successful and, and trying to, to, to keep improving year on year. And stability makes a big difference, I think, to any organisation. But in football where, you know, there can be fluctuations in performance, there can be cycles of relative success and relative disappointment, stability of the club at the top level goes a long way. Um, and that doesn't mean to say that we're averse to change or we're not prepared to adapt and evolve and be different because absolutely we are. But stability just helps you make those decisions in an environment which is fast moving and fast changing and noisy. As I said before, you know, it's a huge <laughs> noisy environment. You know, there isn't, a, I don't think, a sport in the world or even an industry in the world that is watched as much as ours, that is scrutinized as much as ours, that is talked about as much as ours. And even when it is talked about, you know, things that we say are dissected to the nth degree. Uh, for, you know, people looking for different nuances, different different meanings and different stories. And that creates a, a high level of pressure and profile. And with that comes a lot of responsibility. And, you know, from, from that point of view, you know, we take those responsibilities really seriously. We try and run the football club as well as we can. We try and be good citizens inside the game and outside the game. But it doesn't mean to say we're perfect. And it doesn't mean to say we're not going to make mistakes because, you know, we're making hundreds of decisions a week. We can't get all of them right. We just have to get the majority of them right. And if we can, then we've got a good chance of being more successful. I like it. I like the sound. Of it. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it really reminds me a bit of watching the movie there, the way you're talking here and the way you guys are analyzing things and, um, you know, and, and just keep improving step by step, which is obviously exactly what's, what you've been doing here. Um, so the obvious question is, you know, you, you, you phrased it earlier. You said you, you see yourself as a challenger brand. Um, you know, you're coming in here, um, you're constantly breaking new grounds, you're, you know, first time in Europe now, etc. You know, what's the ultimate? I mean, the answer is obviously obvious, I'm sure, winning the, winning the league, winning maybe a trophy in Europe, etc. Or what, what is the next, what is the first sort of target you guys feel is, is achievable and, and you go, you're going after? Well, I'm, I'm sitting here in this office, Marcus, looking at the vision of our club, which is on the wall in huge letters, um, you know, at the back of the offices. And, and it says to 
be a top 10 club in the Premier League and a top four club in the Women's Super League. And okay. you know, that, that vision is not achieved yet. You know, the fact that we've finished ninth and sixth, uh, of course, they're both top 10 finishes, but they're only the two top 10 finishes we've had in 122 years. Yeah. So we can certainly not in any way say that we're a top Rest 10. Rest on laurels yet. Yeah. yeah, we absolutely cannot say that. And equally, we have never finished in the top four in the Women's Super League. So our vision uh, is still very much live and it's still very much unachieved and we've still got a lot of work to do. On top of that, of course, we would love to be in European football more than just this one season. And we're going to push really hard to make sure that we repeat that, either because we can finish in one of the top five, six, seven positions in the Premier League, or we win one of our two trophies, either the FA Cup or the League Cup, or you know, even a, a European trophy if we're lucky enough to be playing in, in Europe again. So, you know, ambition to put some silverware uh, on the on the cabinet uh, in our boardroom is very, very real and very live for us. Uh, but we also know it's also very real and very live for many other clubs in England and across <laughs> Europe. So uh, there's no given uh, responsibility or given uh, expectation that that's going to happen. We've just got to keep working hard. And our internal ambition and one that we use with the staff <clears throat> almost every day is to keep improving, keep finding ways of, of being better. Uh, and if we can keep improving and keep finding ways of being better, then we're not standing still. And if we're not standing still, we're at least trying to stay ahead of some of our bigger competitors. And then we've got a chance of making sure that we stay in the top 10 or being in the top four in the Women's Super League. And, you know, these are these are ambitions that are constant. You know, we cannot afford to stand still. If we stand still even for one month, or one year, we will go backwards in, in this level of football. And, you know, that's something we've all worked too hard to allow to happen. So certainly, you know, while I'm here as chief executive, I want us to keep pushing forward, doing whatever we can to be better um, and finding a way to compete with our bigger rivals. Yeah. That, that, let, that, let's talk for a second. This makes all complete sense, what you just said, obviously. Um, but I want to talk about the women's side, you, which you mentioned just now as well. Um, obviously, it's on your board there as well, the ambition of um, to be, you said, top four, right, in the in the women's. Um, you know, and, and of course, women's football is, as we both know, is just evolving now, right? I think it's sort of uh, over the last maybe a couple of years, it's kind of coming to the forefront. You know, the World Cups, the Euro in, in, uh, did well. Um, and now, you, you know, the professional leagues are, are really becoming, you know, people are really paying attention to it. Um, how, how, how much time you spend there compared to the men's team? You know, I'm assuming it's not really equal yet, but, uh, you know, and, and how do you work with that? Sort of what's the difference between the two? Sure. Well, on, on a personal level, I, I've kind of been involved and interested in, in women's football since 2000, really, when I was at the FA and, mm -hmm. and got to know Hope Powell, who at that time was the England women's head coach, very passionate former uh, player herself, uh, England international, who cared very much about the development of women's football and taught me, I suppose, not only about the value, but also the opportunity for uh, the game, the professional game in England. Mm -hmm. And 20, nearly 25 years ago, I think for a lot of people, it was hard to see how the women's game would grow to where it is now, but hope could see it. 
she was a pioneer. Wow. Um, for me, I was able to, you know, to, to get more exposure to the game, albeit through the national team then, and understand that, you know, there was a passionate group of people um, in our population who cared very much about the women's game, but were not getting a lot of time or a lot of support. So we set about changing that at the FA, supporting the women's national team as best we could at that time, but also trying to establish not only um, a professional level for women's football in England, but also strong opportunities at grassroots level for girls mm. to play, whether it's through school or or local clubs. Because without that, you're not going to have the pyramid and the pipeline that's going to support the game at the top level. Um, and and since I've been at Brighton, um, you know, we took a decision about five or six years ago to commit to women's football fully. Right. And you know, we took a decision as a board that if we were going to be involved in women's football, we had to do it properly. We had to show the female athletes respect. We had to show the fans of our our women's team respect, and that has meant that we've invested way ahead of of the, of the revenues. So we're mm. you know expecting and and indeed sustaining losses every year in women's football, but we think it's the right thing to do. Um, we've already built um, a, a, a world class training facility for our women's and girls teams at our men's training ground as it was. So it's now an entirely integrated men's, women's, boys, girls training facility, all on the same site, all with their own changing rooms, gym facilities, dining facilities, pitches, support staff, whether it's medical, nutrition, Mm. coaches, etc. And again, that's all about making sure that our women's and girls teams are as well prepared for their matches in the Women's Super League and the games that they play as the men's teams. The same for our girls' academy teams as our boys' academy teams, providing equal opportunities for both sexes. But at the same time, as we look ahead to the future, we also are now considering the possibility of designing and building a a stadium for our women's team that is designed to support the growth of the game. And what I mean by that is, at the moment, we're not quite ready to move our women's team into the American Express Stadium that I'm in today, which is a capacity of 32,000. But we genuinely believe there's an opportunity to build the audience and build the attendances to around 10 or 12,000 at least Mm -hmm. when it would be more viable to play our women's games in the main stadium here. So what we're looking to do in the meantime is to build a modular stadium that we can perhaps build for a period of five to seven years in a sustainable way. And at the end of that period, having built the audiences, built the attendances for the, the women's team, built the fan base for the women's team, then merge the women's team back into the main stadium, by which time we'd have also adapted our facilities to make that happen. If you look at the men's stadiums at the moment or the main stadiums at the moment, they're designed for male athletes. They're designed for an audience, mainly male fans. If you look at our first team dressing room here at the American Express Stadium, I think we have two toilet cubicles. Well, if there are 20 female athletes in the dressing room, (laughs) two toilet cubicles are not enough. Um, Our showers are designed open showers because men are quite happy to to shower in, in in a large open environment. Women prefer to have cubicles for their showers. Again, we haven't designed our our dressing rooms like that. Mm. Outside the the technical areas, you know, our stadium is designed to sell many thousands of pints of beer a year, uh, each game. Again, that's not to say women spectators, female spectators don't like to drink a beer, but they don't like to drink it as, in the same quantities, in my experience, as, as, as male audience and, and male fans. Oh. So from my point of view, even our concessions in the stadium are designed for a male, predominantly right. male audience. Yeah, and sense. 
the opportunity we have now if we were to a, able to build a, a smaller, specifically designed stadium for a women's team with a different audience, a more family-oriented audience, a more female-oriented audience, then that will enable us to create a lot of learning that we could then transfer back to our main stadium when the women's team is ready to play in it. Yeah. So it's a big ambition. It's a potentially expensive one, one that's going to need, again, the huge support of, of Tony Bloom as the owner. It's also going to take a lot of work by our commercial team and our ticketing teams to build the audience as it stands. You know, we're averaging two, 3,000 for our women's team, and we have had crowds of up to seven to 10,000, but we need that every week and beyond to make, you know, women's team far more viable uh, from an economic point of view than it, than it currently is. But it's the right thing to do. You know, half the population are female. Lots of girls want to play football at school. They want to play football in their clubs. They want to play professional football. Lots of women already work in football. I know that from my position as a, a non-executive director of women in football and with two daughters that have worked in professional football. I know how passionate women are about working in the game, and there's no reason why Absolutely. they shouldn't have the same opportunities as men. Yeah. No, look, I love everything you're saying there, Paul. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, my daughter is uh, is 17, and she's getting she's a big football fan, and I think her dream is again similar one day to work in it in some sort of capacity. So, no, uh, absolutely, and I think again, um, I already I was already impressed with what you were saying about your men's team and and all the things you're doing there. But I'm even more impressed. I think was just listening to you, um, the focus on the women's team and and all the thing you're saying there, what you're building there, amazing. So, if if you ever if there ever uh, you're looking guys looking for capital, um, and we can help with Smurf Capital, uh, with the sort of uh, funding we provide uh, with our company here, would love to have that conversation uh, off 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 the off radio. Of course, <laughs> we won't be talking about it publicly. Um, but no, it's amazing, and I think all I all is left to do here is really you know wish you best of luck for the rest of the season here, uh, for every for both teams, of course. Um, and you know in in europe and in in the league and hopefully you know by the end of the season again uh, you're you're there and achieve what you're looking for and well you know and i'm looking forward to one day actually come and visit you and, and watch a game together thanks marcus you'd be very welcome and, and thanks for the opportunity to to talk on this uh, on this show it's been it's been great to explain what we do and, and how we do it and what our ambitions are and uh, hopefully um you know everyone's learned a little bit about you know what we're about here at Brighton. Absolutely, and I'm pretty sure you'll get some new fans on the back of this too here because uh, it's very impressive, and and uh, I think you guys done an incredible job. So thank you again, and uh, all the best for the rest of the day there. Thanks, Marcus. Same to you. Talk soon. Thank you. Cheers. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.